This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for August 11th, 2020. A homeless shelter in Toronto has some parents and area residents expressing concern due to the lack of consultation. The annual motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota is going ahead. And we hear from a retired cop in Denver who spent more than four and a half decades hunting down the man who shot him and left him for dead in 1971. All of this starts now. When it comes to the safety of kids going back to school, there's a particularly acute issue in the area in the Midtown, Mount Pleasant and Broadway, not too far from my domicile here where I'm down in the root cellar broadcasting on a daily basis, but they've got three city-run homeless shelters in that neighborhood directly, and you've got four schools. And uh, I don't even think that's counting Northern Collegiate, which is kind of kitty corner. Uh, the Roehampton Hotel has been leased by the city for two years as a place where they can spirit people out of homeless shelters because, you know, living in those congregate settings like that, as we've learned from Windsor-Essex, it leads to the pandemic spreading willfully. And this is something that the city wanted to nip in the bud. So they've set up the shelters, but now the shelters have led to consequences and problems within the hood itself. And to that end, uh, parents are concerned about the safety of their kids and the neighborhood. Some have described this as being a nightmare scenario. Rachel Chernos Lynn is the TDSB trustee for Don Valley West Ward 11 and is here with uh, us to speak about this situation in that neighborhood. Rachel, good to have you at the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm glad to be here today. Well, I'm happy that you came on because, I mean, we need to know how dire the situation is, is it? Well, it's certainly not a great situation at the moment. I have personally done um, walk-arounds of the area and seen photos uh, that have been sent in, as well as received dozens and dozens and dozens of emails and calls from concerned residents and parents in particular who have children that go to school in the neighborhood um, about what they are experiencing. And uh, what they are experiencing are things like youth syringes uh, being found, people loitering on school property, sleeping on school property, apparently people being... um, harassed as they go about their daily daily uh you know to and from so we are concerned because thousands of students returning to school at the beginning of september amidst the pandemic and that creates a host of challenges of course for students and families um, and lots of anxiety about that so to have this in addition, is certainly a challenge that um, we would like to get uh, under control and and dealt with quickly. Well, my understanding as well is beyond the students and the school safety issue, there have been residents in the neighborhood who have claimed everything's changed. There's a rise in crime, vandalism, break-ins, that kind of thing. What do you hear? What do you know about that? Well, I've certainly heard lots of reports about that um, and, and seen video footage of it at some of the stores. There is a Facebook group uh, where lots of things have been posted and there have also been some events documented at the shelters on Broadway. There was a city um, a city staffer from the shelter who was stabbed. There's been a fire. Uh, you know, so, so we do, there has been some documentation of challenges like that as well as things like 
people defecating in public, people urinating in public, um, and we have we have had lots of reports of that. So lewd behavior. Um, you know, not not always being neighborly. And, and that's not to say all of the shelter residents are like that, because many of them are, are, you know, just people who are going through a rough time and who need need some help. And we need to be concerned about all, all Torontonians and look after them, too. So, it, you know, it's just a really challenging situation when you place um, a shelter of this type in the midst of a very busy area where we happen to have five schools and in particular the Roehampton Hotel is within 50 meters of schools on either side. There's Eglinton Junior Public School at the corner of Mount Pleasant and Eglinton and there's Northern uh, Northern Secondary School um, you know at uh, Roehampton and Mount Pleasant so kitty corner to the shelter. Which leads to the obvious question, was there any consultation done with the placement of these shelters in proximity to so many schools? Well, certainly not with the TDSB, and um, no discussion about that, no phone call about that, no heads up about that. I did receive a phone call from Councillor Matlow, who is in... um, He's not the counselor in my ward, but he is the counselor where the shelters are located. And he did give me a call a few days after the shelters had opened to let me know about the situation. And um, I think he was as uh, he was surprised by it as well because this did go through my understanding is this went through the emergency act because of covid uh and it didn't go through the normal channels but that said even when these things do go to the city council in a normal situation not covid they don't normally um they don't normally necessarily consult with the tdsb per se there is usually um community consultation That, of course, didn't happen this time, but there actually isn't a process whereby the school system is consulted or trustees are consulted uh, in in even a normal year. But certainly in this one, we were not, and uh, I was not even aware of it until it was already um, underway, open, and lots of the incidents were starting to happen. Again, with Rachel Chernos Lynn, TDSB trustee for Don Valley West Ward 11. And in that ward, we've got in the Midtown uh, near Mount Pleasant uh, at Eglinton, effectively just north of there, situation with a number of schools and kids about to go back to school, but they put in shelters to place people temporarily, we hope, with the COVID-19 thing raging in the downtown shelters. You want to have social distancing, so individual rooms are let in the aforementioned Roehampton Hotel uh which is obviously central to that neighborhood. Now, here's the issue, because if there's going to be a a problem with the clients of the shelter space now uh, getting onto school property and so on and so forth or presenting perhaps a potential danger, uh, who gets to confront them? Whose duty is it to maybe, you know, address this situation? Is the city making resources available for that, or is it left to you to uh, find your own way around this problem? Well, this is, of course, one of the challenges, but I will say that the city has been responsive uh, to my concerns and my phone calls. Um, you know, they have put in place some mitigation measures and some, some supports. Uh, I don't believe it's quite enough yet to get us to where we need to be for the start of school, and I'm working on a wish list for the mayor who... who um, who did call me back, I will say, as soon as I sent him an email, uh, because I ha- we did write a letter. I will say that the TDSB um, 
Shelley Laskin, who's the trustee in the adjacent ward, and I wrote a letter um, on behalf of our two wards expressing our concerns about the shelter to the mayor uh, and CCing the city city staff and our city councillors. And we didn't get a reply right away from the mayor's office, so I did follow up with a phone call, and he did call me back um, immediately when I when I sent that email. So they are trying to be responsive and to work with us as partners, and that is very much appreciated because, of course, we are on a shoestring budget. Um, this year is no different than any other year, but really all of our resources need to go into preparing for the, a safe opening of school amidst a pandemic. And so we cannot be asking staff to run interference uh, unless absolutely necessary. So we are working with the city to make sure there are security in place, uh, to make sure kids can travel safely to and from TTC stops, for example, in the neighbourhood to make sure there are sweeps done of school grounds in the evening and in the morning before school to make sure, you know, any garbage is is gotten rid of to make sure uh, safety patrols are walking the neighbourhood regularly and that those routes take them um, right through the school area to make sure our children and our staff and all students are kept safe and secure because that is really that is really what our promise is that we need to be able to ensure that kids can um, get to school safely be at school safely and return from school safely Amen to that. That's certainly the school scenario in the broader context. You've got a community that's uh, also quite concerned. As you said earlier, you know, you've got criminal activity. There have been fires set and uh, break-ins, vandalism, and so on and so forth. So you would hope that the city would be mindful of the impact on the neighborhood. As you said so insightfully, we wouldn't be allowed to put a pot shop in that location. So uh, why then are we also rolling the dice with kids going to school or communities in general that uh, just want to ensure that they can operate uh, with a certain modicum of uh, safety and security. I appreciate your time, Rachel, this afternoon, and thanks for it. Hope the kids do get back to school uh, without too much, uh, you know, upheaval or con- uh, confusion. But uh, we're all awaiting that too, as I'm sure you are. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for for making this issue uh, of the concern that it really ought to be. Amen. Again, uh, Rachel Chernos Lynn, TDSB trustee for Don Valley West Ward Eleven. Oh dear. Blue Jays are opening at home in Buffalo, Salem Field, which is right by the hockey rink. Beautiful ballpark. I mean, it's not a major league park, but it's got the dimensions at least, and uh, it's a nice, tight little location should fans ever be allowed to go there. But uh, right now they're not, as we know, because we got all the social distancing still in effect when it comes to the Stage 4 that we're all anticipating. That's not going to be in the very foreseeable future anyway, uh, going to concerts and the like. What did I read? Metallica is uh, going to come out later this month with... uh, some kind of concert film that they'll debut at drive-ins and they'll charge you like 115 bucks for a car up to six people and with the 115 ticket uh you'll also get uh, an mp3 code for a download of four of of their albums that they're releasing or the uh newest album anyway is that the wave of the future who knows? I mean, everything has changed because of COVID-19. We know that the Blue Jays obviously were not allowed to play out of the Rogers Center because there was fear that these teams traveling to and fro, unlike the hockey bubble or basketball bubble, uh, it would present a clear and present danger. Because you'd have, when people come into your midst, there's a chance then they leave as well, and uh, the spread could be uh, amplified that way. Which leads us to Sturgis, South Dakota. 
and they've got this annual big bike rally that happens at this time of the year and it draws hundreds of thousands of people from all over the U.S. of A. and including parts in Canada as well as I guess internationally and there was some consideration given to not holding the rally this year and yet council did decide to green light it nonetheless. Why is that? Well, let's find out from the mayor of Sturgis, South Dakota. Mark Karstensen has joined us on the line, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here, Mark. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. Thanks for having me. Well, all right. Uh, was I right in saying there was great apprehension about green lighting the event this year, but you went ahead nonetheless? Why is that? You bet. Lot, lots of discussion started back in March, obviously, when all this blew up. Um, as the, as we move forward, the state of South Dakota kind of took a different route than the vast majority of the United States. Uh, our May and June numbers of visitors are unbelievable. We've South Dakota's pretty much had no restrictions. There's been some, but it's pretty much all businesses have remained open that that chose to do so, following the CDC uh, social distancing guidelines and things like that. As we move forward through the time in May and June, all those uh, executive orders from the governor were lifted, and basically South Dakota was wide open. And since then, we've had tons of visitors through the process of talking with, uh, you know, different aspects of what makes up the rally, being the state of South Dakota, uh, campgrounds, hotel owners, taking input from visitors and citizens. It was very apparent uh, that hundreds of thousands of people are coming during this time of year. The vast majority of where these people stay are outside the city limits of Sturgis. So whatever decision the city of Sturgis makes, we still don't have jurisdiction over these people that, you know, have these campgrounds and cabins and everything where hundreds of thousands of people stay. So with that being said, we knew we had to prepare for a very large influx of, citizens, of visitors coming to our city. Um, that means closing Main Street, putting up temporary uh, traffic regular, you know, signs and uh, uh, signals and things like that to help with the flow of traffic, uh, bring in extra police officers and porta-potties and, and prepare for people coming. Um, included in that, we've uh, added a lot of disinfection, disinfectant stations for people to use for their hands and their choice. Um, and then also the way we clean our streets is different this year than we ever have. We've always cleaned the streets each night, but this year it's using some disinfectant and actually we're, the streets are very clean when we start the day again. But the bottom line was is we, it was apparent people are coming and we have to prepare the best we could to make it as safe as possible for people. Um, so there you go. It was inevitable. And so uh, rather than shoveling sand against the tide, let's just go with it, but try to mitigate any of the spread, right? You, you bet. We spoke with temporary vendors prior to the rally, explaining the CDC guidelines in case they weren't aware of them. Their signage, uh, we asked that they hang up. Um, and it's quite amazing because there's a lot of people here, but... They, I mean, the Black Hills is a large region, and they're spread throughout the Black Hills. People are, you know, not gathering in huge amounts. Now, I hear after people look on our webcams and say, there's people all over the place with no masks required, and that's true. That is what's happening. But to be quite honest, there's less people downtown than there really could be because they're spread out so much across the region. Yeah, like how big a town is Sturgis, by the way? Well, we'll know after this 2020 census, but before this 2020 census, the last census was taken in 2010, and there were 6,700 people, like 6,772, I believe is the number, for a small right. little town. Yeah, right, and and so you're overwhelmed. I mean, basically, if I understand correctly, this is the 80th year, but on the 75th anniversary, didn't you have like three quarters of a million people? I think right at, right at 800,000 came to the rally that year is what was... Um, the, the analysis showed that almost 800,000 people came to the hills during the 75th. And without COVID, the 80th would have probably been 
that or more, but obviously uh, there's restrictions in place, and we don't want people to come if they don't want to. I mean, we certainly respect the fact that if you want to stay home, that whenever you're willing and want to come to Sturgis, we'll welcome you then. But it has been an economic boon to the town, hasn't it? Mm, without a doubt. It's a boom to the whole, the whole state. Anywhere, the economic impact that money spent because of the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally ranges, $650 million to over a billion dollars, depending on the attendance. That's for the state of South Dakota. I was going to say, it's got to sustain a lot of what uh, your town is on about with infrastructure and everything and porta-potties. I'm guessing there were, you know, uh, restaurants or food trucks and so on and so forth. So that's all built into the equation. Uh, But you're taking care because uh, this is being condemned in some quarters as a super spreader event. I mean, your own governor, Noam, I guess is her name. She's taken some heat for being rather liberal in her approach, but the numbers have been relatively low in South Dakota throughout. Uh, So is there a concern that this may be a super spreader event? Well, I think that obviously some people have that concern, and we certainly want people when they go home to be smart and when they're on their way here to be smart. But the, the people have, like I said, for months have been coming into South Dakota and the numbers that we see, and we've taken a, you know, a major calculated decision on as we go through this process. And the, the, I mean, our COVID numbers are there, but they're, they're pretty minimal. And we've had plenty of out of state visitors. I mean, from all over the United States for months now. And it, it's, yes, we deal with it, but it, it's just a small fraction for sure. Mayor Mark Karstensen is with us. Sturgis, South Dakota, the area that uh, houses this annual event, uh, which is a bike rally that is without parallel anywhere on the planet. Uh, As he was saying, about uh, 800,000 came uh, during, I guess, the 75th anniversary five years ago. This this is the 80th year. I'm kind of curious, Mark, how the rally start to begin with? Well, as a small group of riders that uh, the, the local... Indian motorcycle dealer invited some friends out to do some racing and touring around the hills in 1938. And uh, since that day, it's uh, become an annual event and growing every, sing- every year since. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I, I've been blessed enough to know Pappy Hoyle when I was a young boy. He's the one that started it. Um, and there's just few of the originals, the people that started that are left because it's been around so long. But the spirit and the freedom and why people come to the Black Hills is certainly apparent every time you see a smile on somebody's face. Yeah, it's interesting, because uh, usually these uh, large rallies, this number of people, they tend to go off rather peacefully and without incident, don't they? Without a doubt. It, it, people are just happy to be here. They, they respect our community. We welcome with open arms, and they just want to come back, and they look forward to it the next year. So, yes, it's very much respect, very much just, you know, family and seeing old friends and making new ones. But it, there's a lot of people, and it's not... It's not the big wild party that people would would assume it is when you say hundreds of thousands of bikers. I mean, there's certainly you, people hanging out and having fun, but they're, they're certainly not there to destroy things. The residents all on side. I know some feel they weren't consulted adequately on this, but uh, what's the general sense now? I mean, the, the rally's already well, on. You bet. There's a, probably a third of our community that would rather the rally not come even before COVID existed. So it's a fight that we face every day that, you know, the rally is an inconvenience. Our small town blows up into a very large city. Um, it, it affects everybody that's here. And some choose to leave, some choose to embrace it and open their house up to friends and family. And it, it's, there's a lot of different ways to handle it. But certainly there, there's a portion of our citizens that wish the rally did not exist. 
Um, on top of that, we did send out a non-scientific survey to people just asking their opinion because certainly the residents are part of it. Now, the national news media has run with that and said 60% of our residents don't want the rally. And of the information that came back, that's true, but only a third of the information, only a third of the surveys came back and we sent one piece of paper out in a survey, and some of them came back with five pieces of paper in it. So obviously there was <laughs> copies made. My point is it wasn't scientific, if, but if, you, if the national news wants to run with 60% didn't want it, they can run with it, but it's certainly not true. You know, that might be a good argument against mail-in voting. Uh, but that's another Without issue. A doubt. That's another <laughs> issue. <laughs> but we saw it in June or in May when we sent it out for sure. Uh, and so uh, you're going to go ahead with the same kind of itinerary where concerts, drag races, and all the rest, or it's going to be, or is it going to be somewhat muted this year? Well, the city of Sturgis, we have a lot of events we put on, which include, I'll just say, a handful of the opening ceremonies, events that occur up at our fairgrounds, racing and bending, and you know other things. Um, we have a military appreciation day with the B1 flyover. Uh, we have a lot of those events where we're, the city of Sturgis says. Thousands of people come in this tight area, and we're going to do something. We've passed on doing those this year. Um, so the, the itinerary is different. The city of Sturgis is doing way less hosting, but there's enough you know, private facilities and venues around the area that the concerts are still going. They're still racing. There's still plenty of things for people to do. Plus, there's the beautiful Black Hills and go social distance on your motorcycle for hours, and there's nothing better. Well, there you go. It's uh, all part of the mythology of the open road. By the way, uh, the rally has begun. When's it tend to wrap up? It's usually about a 10-day run, isn't it? It is. It starts on. It started last Friday on the 7th, and it la- wraps up this coming Sunday. So it's a 10-day event, and uh, obviously there's people that come in and set up earlier. So as the city of Sturgis, you know, it's really been going on for about three weeks already um, with a lot of activities, a lot of, a lot of new uh, tents up, and people putting their businesses together to event to the crowd that's coming and it's a it's been a wonderful rally to this point for sure people are happy they're happy to be out they're happy to see old friends and it's just a positive feeling all the way around and a lot of canadians too well we have a lot of canadians that come down and i don't know i I think that's part of a lot of the chunk that's missing is the international crowd that can't either make it here or cross the border and it's a yeah we uh Mm. We, we welcome Canadians for all of our rallies. We have we have different kind of rallies, too, other than just motorcycles. We have a Camaro and a, a Mustang rally and things like that in our city. <laughs> our small town knows how to put on a bet. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you're going through mm-hmm. the whole retinue of all the big three automakers, uh, their, their lineup. Anyway, listen, uh, Mayor, the best of luck uh, continuing on with the rally in this COVID year. And uh, hopefully, you know, Canadians can get down there next year for this thing because it is uh, one of the high watermarks for a lot of people. Mayor Mark Carstensen, he is the mayor of Sturgis, South Dakota. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, John. When it comes to a police story, uh, this one is... A whopper. I mean, I first heard about this uh, a couple of days back. I was watching the news, and uh, the story goes that there's a a former cop in Denver who was shot back in the early 70s by a, a guy who was finally sent to the big house but escaped, and he'd been on the lam for the last 40 years. And this police officer, now retired but a super cop, and he was lauded and received all kinds of citations and awards uh, as being such, has come out with a book called The Blue Chameleon, The Life Story of a Super Cop. Daryl Cinquanta is the officer in question, or the former officer, and he's joined the Oakley Show to tell us all about this ordeal and more. Daryl, it's good to have you here on the program. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for having me. 
Well, I appreciate this. As I say, last week I was just transfixed by this story that basically it was a 50-year uh, time span or line timeline, and uh, justice was finally served, I guess, in your case. I mean, walk us through the story. What was your initial encounter with this individual oh. who shot you? Well, I was a rookie cop. I'd been on about a year, and I was working mornings, and um, I had just gotten a donut and a chocolate milk at Winchell's, and I was headed for this little gross, uh, grocery store uh, uh, to get a Sunday paper. And I cut through the Quig Newton projects when I saw this vehicle parked on the side of the street with two females and a male. And the male looked very suspicious, and uh, he was wearing one of those Castro hats. And uh, so I made a U-turn, went back, and I confronted this guy. And uh, he acted like he'd only speak Spanish, and he could only produce a Social Security card, which had the name Luis Archuleta on it. So I got him out of the car, and I took him to the back of the car, and I said, put your hands on the trunk. And he didn't. He turned backwards, and he put his butt to the trunk, and he was moving sideways, and his right elbow was coming up. So I did a rookie mistake, and uh, I hit him in the side of the temple and knocked his hat and glasses off and reached across his body, grabbed his right arm and hand, and he had a revolver, and... Uh, Anyway, he leveled it and shot me. So he shot you. Obviously, uh, you know, I guess uh, this was something that could have been fatal but wasn't. Uh, he went to jail for that. Uh, he was found, I guess, guilty for uh, assault with a deadly weapon. And uh, well, while he was in jail, he escaped prison. So uh, bring us more uh, into uh, a contemporary timeline. He was sent to prison, but he escaped. When did he escape? And okay. then when he was on the lam all those years, were you continuing to track him? Well, here's here's the sequence. He ran, and the Crusade for Justice moved him out of Denver to Mexico. In Mexico, he gets in a firefight. He gets uh, arrested. He gets to a, an American consulate and says, hey, I shot a cop in Denver. Get me out of here. You know, they apparently weren't treating him real well. So anyway, we get him back. He goes to trial. He gets nine and a half to 14. Now... Uh, he and another inmate go to the state hospital where all uh, inmates go for minor operations. And he's met by a, an accomplice with a gun, or a number of guns, I should say. And they take the guard hostage, and off they go. This this escape was like something out of a Hollywood script. So he takes off. He's gone for 46 years until I find him. Well, tell us about that. I mean, I'm sure it's in the blue chameleon. This is the life story of a super cop, Daryl Cinquanta, who was with us on the line. Former Denver cop yeah. shot by this guy. The guy was on the lamp 46 years later. So how did you track him down, Daryl? Well, th this is not in the book. But uh, what I had started doing when he escaped, I mean, we did all the normal things when he first took off, covering family, friends, and looking for him. But uh, I don't think he ever came close to Denver. So... I was contacting his family, uh, acquaintances, um, you know, ex-cons, informants, and I did that for all these years. And, uh, you know, just, just you know, get them to talk. And I figured if I could just get them to talk and I'd bother them, you know, every so often, that uh, maybe somebody would surface and give them to me. Well, what do you know? June 24th, I get a call, and this guy says, you know, I've been thinking about it. And I'm going to tell you where the guy is that shot you. 
and he gave me his uh, alias, his address, and some other minor stuff. And I checked it all out, and my God, this guy had a history, and he was in the databases. Anybody could have brought him up and looked at him under that name, Ramon Montoya. So anyway, um, it uh, looked really good, and I found that he had a, uh, a DWAI in 2011 in New Mexico. So I uh, pull that, and he has a mugshot, and I look at the mugshot, and it's him. So, But no prints. So somebody took the print card and threw it away. So he obviously had some help in establishing this new identity down in uh, New Mexico. Yeah, living as Ramon Montoya when his actual name was yeah. Louis Archuleta. And, uh, his real so- name is Lawrence Pusateri. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so the plot thickens. He's actually had several aliases. Uh, oh, none the aliases. So here this is all these years later, about 50 years later. Uh, do you want to get together and speak to the guy, confront the guy, or is there oh, any? Uh... I would love to. And uh, probably the first thing I'd say to this guy is I'd congratulate him on staying underground for 46 years. And maybe I could open some dialogue with him. But in Colorado, I got to get his permission when he's in Canyon City to go see him. And I don't know if he's going to give me that permission. So there's no statute of limitations on this. If I understand correctly, the court in Colorado issued a new arrest warrant involving his prison escape, at least. Yeah, under the federal law, uh, UFAP, an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. But they can file the kidnapping, um, the escape the felon with a gun, they can file all that, and I hope they do, and uh, make him go to trial. Well, you know, it speaks heartingly of uh, people who might be worried that, you know, the justice uh, really is never complete, the cold cases out there that continue to languish or linger, but yours finally settled, I guess, now that this guy is being brought in again. Uh, He's at the ripe age of 77. But your stories as a super cop in your book, uh, Blue Chameleon, I'm reading the background, and uh, they cite that you were really one of these guys who kind of went about uh, business in your own way. You had your own style, uh, some of it controversial, but you brought in, you had more arrests and convictions than anybody on the Denver force then and now. Uh, How did you all accomplish that? Were you a bit of a maverick? Oh, sort of, but I worked all the time, like 24-7, and I had a lot of informants, and... uh, uh, they helped to make me famous, really. You know, I, I was asking a question rhetorically earlier because a lot of the police now are getting a bad rap, or at least there's this perception that somehow, you know, uh, they're all operating as rogues. And uh, But do you get that sense that uh, there's something that has befallen the public's perception of police where it's no longer seen as a noble or honorable profession? Is there a problem with that? Big problem. They are so wrong. You know, police are good people. The percentage of brutal cops, bad cops, has got to be less than 1% or maybe way lower than even that. Most cops are such uh, good people in, in giving and protecting, and, you know, the public is so wrong, and they're going to regret what they're doing. You know, they're, what they're doing to the police is, is going to backfire on them. But uh, there's so few that are bad. 
What about the call for reform? I mean, where they're saying about, uh, you know, reforming or at least reimagining the police, uh, the extreme defunding just doesn't make sense to anybody uh, in a reasonable way. But uh, what about reform? Do you think reform is necessary in certain regards? No. No, it'll backfire on them. Let them do it. You know, <laughs> look, look at all the riots that they've had and all the looting, the burning. And, you know, it, it goes back to um, uh, administrative, um, uh, what's the word? Um, I'm looking for a word here. It, it's the governor, it's the mayor, it's the chief of police. And they have, it's administrative courage. That's the word I was looking for. They lack it. They don't have it. They don't back their men. They don't back the police department. They're quick to fire. Oh, you know, any controversy, oh, let's fire them. Well, you know, that's going to backfire on them, too, because a lot of them are going to get their jobs back. Well, we're also hearing a lot are quitting, and there's a lot of people who are demoralized. Uh, New York City, a lot of the cops have turned in their badges. Uh, do you see that happening? Hmm? That's sad. That's yeah. really sad. Yeah, well, that seems to be a consequence of what's taking place now, uh, a real new yeah. dynamic when it comes to policing. Really appreciate your joining us, and I thought that's a fant- fantastic story. It took 50 years, but you well, finally caught you. up caught up to the guy. Yeah. Blue Chameleon, by the way, uh, the story of a super cop, and that's Daryl Cinquanta out of Denver. Again, thanks for your time, Daryl. All the best going forward. Oh, you bet. Thank you. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for August 11th, 2020. You can hear us live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. And if you're not in the GTA, you can listen live at 640toronto.com. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.